have on Twitter, I did leave for a little while just because there was a moment last summer where I couldn't block people fast enough. I was just getting so much racist abuse. In fact, there was an entire Twitter thread where people were trying to gauge my IQ by assessing my skin color. So they took photos of me from online and they thought if my skin color was darker, then my IQ must be lower. And that was a point at which I just thought I have to get off here for a while. It's just crazy. So I'm not impervious to it. It still affects me. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Angela Saini is a British science journalist and presents radio and TV programs for the BBC. She is also author of Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the recent Superior, The Return of Race Science. I saw Angela give a talk last year at a festival, and I found her ideas absolutely fascinating. In just 40 minutes, she pretty much exploded the idea of race in my mind, saying that basically it doesn't exist in biology. So I was delighted that Angela agreed to be on the Ideas Lab podcast, where I could explore the ideas with her, and also hear about how she's coped with the backlash she's received over some of her ideas, particularly on social media. Hi, Angela. Thanks so much for making time to be on the Ideas Lab podcast. Thank you for having me. I was so impressed when I saw you speak at the Also Festival and you spoke about race and in the in the process of about 45 minutes sort of exploded the idea of race as something that doesn't exist in my head, which is interesting. And I, I, hopefully I'm considering myself a pretty person, pretty free of racism, but the idea of a race doesn't, doesn't exist. Is that a fair summary of what you're saying in your book, Superior, and and in your other work? Well, I'm not saying it doesn't exist as a social reality. Um, There are lots of things that are are socially real without being biologically real, like democracy and money and, you know, lots of things that we use in our everyday lives that have a really profound impact on how we live. But that doesn't mean they have a basis in nature, that they were always there. And race, or at least the racial categories that we use every Every day certainly are one of those. They they are social categories. Yeah, so that's amazing. So because it's so easy, we, we look at somebody who has particular traits that we associate with a certain part of the world, and and um, it's very easy to categorise somebody into what you often what you might guess somebody's race is. But what you're saying is that really isn't the case uh, scientifically. There's no basis for saying, but there are distinct boundaries. And there are, I don't know, I think classically have there been five or something races? I can't remember. You, obviously, people have had all sorts of different versions. Well, they have. And in fact, if you look at the history of race science, and when I talk about race science, I mean really at the birth of Enlightenment science, Western science, when people started to be categorized for the first time, when we started categorizing the natural world, um, humans also started to be categorized. And there were all kinds of numbers. Some people thought there were three races. Some people thought there were five. Some people thought there were hundreds or even millions. Um, if you if you define race as a family group or however you define it, it can it can vary. And that really speaks to how amorphous and uh, ephemeral this 
idea really is because you can draw boundaries however you want and wherever you like. Um, the nature of human difference, and I'm not saying that human difference doesn't exist. Of course it exists. And there is more commonality uh, between members of the same family genetically. Of course, I'm more related, for instance, to my parents and to my sisters than to some random person on the street. Um, but that relation, that genetic relationship gets weaker the further away you get. Now, historically, we have tended to live near kin. And this means that there are sometimes very fuzzy but um, real genetic similarities between communities of people, villages, towns. Of course, that breaks down um, the further away you get. So when you get to the continental level or the country level, which is the level at which we think about race today, um, it, it starts to lose all meaning altogether. There's hardly any, um, the, for example, there is no black gene and there is no white gene. You cannot scan someone's DNA and definitively 100% know their skin color or what race they belong to because it becomes so fuzzy at that level. So you can draw the boundaries at where you want to group people. You can draw them at the family level, in which case perhaps it's more accurate you know because there are genetic there are distinct genetic commonalities at the family level that's not to say that families have genes that no other members of the human race have that's not true um you can draw them at the village level or the town level you can draw them wherever you want but wherever you draw them it is fuzzy it's never a hundred percent and it's never distinct and this is fascinating so the idea that if you if you took somebody a dna sample from somebody you can't say they are simply one race or another is that what you're saying yeah you can't and this is why when people do those dna ancestry tests there is a probability score attached to them so for instance in my case i know where my family um ancestry lies very definitively very clearly my parents are from north india their parents are from north india and as far as i know for many generations they have lived in that region and yet when my ancestry test was done and i should say i didn't choose to do it myself because i think a lot of this is bunkum but um it was done for a television program i was making and um it turned out that I was something like 96% South Asian. So they couldn't even pin me down to India. And even then it was only 96%. And South Asia is a huge, you know, swathe of the world, a third of the world. So, but, you know, even then we might imagine that, you know, you can scan someone's DNA and know where they're from. You really can't. Um, so this is, it's amazing, isn't it? Because everyone gets very excited about these things. And, and I really understand as somebody who deals with marketing, why people did it because in terms of a dna test uh um you know it's it's very exciting for people to come back and find out you know you're four percent chinese or three percent lithuanian or or you know a, a friend of mine had had the uh had a dna test done and his parents were his father was convinced but they had irish ancestry and they're very proud of that and he goes well look there's nothing in our genes but what you're actually saying he was quite proud to disprove him but the the interesting thing is just because he has a truck of his father not because he has a truck with the irish or anything so um so that it's but that's but fascinating. So all of this is basically, I mean, particularly the idea that you can be four percent French and sort of, you know, zoom something into that level of granularity. Surely, 
it, it, I always thought that was fairly dubious, but what you're saying is it's really pretty much nonsense. It is nonsense. Um, but like I said, human difference does exist. There is human variation. It doesn't work in distinct ways. There are no hard boundaries around any group uh, in the world, but that, that doesn't mean there aren't kind of fuzzy statistical um, similarities between people who have lived in the same region for a long time. Um, that is not the same as race. Race, when we talk about race, we're thinking about distinct biological categories and they simply don't exist. And that's fascinating. To me, to me you know, walked out of that talk and I thought, wow, that's quite a different way of looking at the world. Isn't that... Because I, I never uh, believed for a moment that I always thought of cultural difference and uh, and biological difference as completely separate. But, but even then, coming out of your talk, I thought it, it still made me look at things differently and in a, in a way that I think is very healthy, which is to to go even one step further in dissolving any kind of prejudice that might be present in us. And so, so it was an exciting idea to me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, it was it was a process for me as well because I think when when I went into writing this, and I should say. Um, I have an engineering degree, so I don't have a biology background. And uh, most of my career, I've, uh, as a journalist, I've written on all kinds of things. And when I started writing Superior, I think in the back of my mind, I had some commitment to the idea that perhaps there was some biological basis to write, even if it wasn't 100%, maybe there was some something there. And to learn through the process of speaking to so many geneticists, looking at the historical evidence, looking at everything in context and picking it apart and realizing actually there's even less than I expected. Um, it's it's sometimes quite an affront, not just to uh, your worldview, but also to your sense of identity. You know, I grew up as a British Indian woman in the UK. I was born here. I consider myself very firmly British. And yet I feel I, I've always felt like I've had to claim my Indian identity at, this first, at the same time. Not that I feel anything negatively about that. I've lived in India as an adult. I have a strong relationship with the country. I actually want my first book was about India. But um, I felt like I had to claim it because, for biological reasons, because I look brown and so many people see me as Indian. And perhaps there is something in my body that makes me Indian. To learn that if I were to go onto the streets of uh, Muswell Hill, where I live right now, and find a random Indian person and find a random white person, and if we all had our DNA test done, it is perfectly possible for my DNA to have more in common with a white person than the Indian person. It's quite an affront to your identity then that you've grown up with for such a long time. So these are ideas that are deeply rooted in all of us. I'm not... I don't think it's racist to believe in these ideas because we're so inculcated with them from a very, very young age. We use these categories on a daily basis. We're expected to, you know, when we fill in forms or apply for a job or fill in the census or go to the doctors, we are bombarded with this idea that these categories are real in some ways. Um, so to actually understand that the categories may be real socially because of the way that we think about people, but they are not real biologically, um, is it really does play with your mind. It makes you differently about the world. Yeah, it does. I think it, it, that's why I thought it was so fascinating to talk to you about it. And as you were talking, a couple of questions came into my mind, you know, when I first saw you speak. And somebody else in the audience asked my first question, which was, 
because you were talking about um you know the danger of of uh, referring to race in medical treatment and i thought but what about sickle cell anemia which is known to be much more common in people of of African origin, I forget what part of the world it is, but basically places that uh, traditionally have had um, a lot of malaria because uh, if you get one, one gene for sickle cell anemia and not both, it doesn't make you ill, it makes you resistant to malaria. So is it not useful to then, um, in the medical world, to think sometimes in terms of race and um, and say, well, if you're Afro-Caribbean, for instance, you're more, I don't know what, I can't remember where the group is. Uh, you're more like, you know, we need to check for, we need to be particularly alert to sickle cell anemia. Is that not a useful thing? Um, it really, it depends on how you think about it. So sickle cell, as you say, is more common or it appears to be more common in black communities in the UK and the US because of demographics, because people um, in these countries who are black tend to be West African in origin, um, or at least their ancestry is West African in origin. And these are regions of the world in which malaria, as you say, is common. So sickle cell is common. We have to remember that sickle cell trait is not found all over Africa. And it's also found in parts of the world in which people have white skin. Um, so it's really a demographic issue in the country where you're from. If you look globally, it's not a black illness. It is only It only looks black if you have um, the demographic situation that we have, for example, in the UK, where people have certain ancestries from certain regions of the world. And this is why in the US, there was an effort in the US um, some years back to um, only screen black babies for the sickle cell trait because they thought it was an unnecessary cost to screen everybody. Um, and this makes sense. You know, if we know that a, a condition is more common in people sharing one ancestry than another, then that makes sense. But actually, because of the demographics of the US, because white people outnumber black people in the US, and because sickle cell is also found in white people as well as black people, when they looked at the dem when they looked at the epidemiology around this, um, the rates of at which you're likely to find the illness, the order of magnitude likeliness of you finding it in a white baby and a black baby are around the same. And that's why now in those states where they were considering this measure of screening by race, they don't do that. They just screen all the babies. Right. And and that's the danger of using these broad brushstroke kind of ideas. I mean, I mean, you miss people for whom there, there might be a higher risk. As you, I think you said there are parts of um, Indonesia or Malaysia or somewhere that but also have that trait very commonly. So it, the danger is you, you come up with something too simplistic if you don't... Um, Look at it more thoroughly. Yes, and I th this is something I'm working on at the moment is just trying to explain to people that most medicines actually don't work in everybody. In fact, all medicines, I would hesitate to say, don't work in everybody. There was a piece of research that came out last year that showed that half the people in the UK taking statins are getting no benefit from them. Now, this is nothing to do with gender. It's nothing to do with race. It's not because of the group that they belong to. It's because every single person is different. And what the medical community does when it groups people, and I'm not saying it's wrong to group people, but what they're essentially doing is saying, we don't have personalized medicine yet. We can't know every individual person's biological profile. But if we know that certain conditions are more prevalent in one group than another, then that's a kind of fudge that we can use in order to guide us in treatment. 
And that can be useful sometimes. But like I said, because these differences are statistical and they're very fuzzy, it can mean that people fall through the net. And in fact, very often people do. Um, so there's a statins case. There's another case I talk about in my book of um, a woman who didn't receive a woman in the US who didn't receive her diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, which is a really serious condition that kills people at a very young age until she was eight years old. And the reason for that is that she was black and doctors that she was seeing couldn't believe, uh, as nonsensical as this sounds, couldn't believe that a black person could have this condition because it was seen as a white condition. And it was only when a passing doctor spotted her x-ray on the wall, so they didn't know her skin color because they were just looking at her x-ray, they immediately spotted that she had cystic fibrosis when she was eight years old. So this is why I say we have to be careful. Although it can feel like a useful fudge to use these groupings when we think about uh, medicine, it can also do incredible damage. It feels like something on the road to personalized medicine. But what I would prefer is personalized medicine, is every person is treated as an individual that we understand their biological profile for them as an individual. Yeah, no, I fully support that from my own experience, having a pituitary condition and, and have a try and or have historically tried to find one solution for everybody. And it really, really doesn't work. So I, I can confirm that for uh, for multiple other things. I, I'm a fan of personalized medicine. So the the other big topic that that's really explosive um, that was the other question that was raised in my mind when I first saw you give that talk, and which you address in your book, is that of IQ because there seems to be some data that shows there's a very uh, different um, there's there's an uneven distribution of IQ amongst different races. Um, and this is obviously a really sensitive topic because if you can prove that some races are not intelligent as other, that, that almost justifies uh, racism if we're not careful, or that's what it seems like. So what is really going on with IQ? This is such an incendiary topic. And in fact, um, at the moment in France, I recently learned um, it has become a huge thing that people have started sharing on social media, a map of the world that seems to show that IQs are different depending on what region you're from. What they don't realize is that that map was drawn by Richard Lynn, who is a known pseudoscientific racist. Um, he was affiliated with the University of Ulster, but last year or, or two years ago, the University of Ulster dissociate, uh, took away his emeritus position because of his poor scholarship. He is one of the editors of the Mankind Quarterly, which is a known racist publication. It began in the 1960s, funded by a very wealthy segregationist in the US. And it really is just a vehicle for nonsense pseudoscience, for kind of pseudoscientific racism and sexism. Um, these comparisons that are done are problematic on so many different levels. Firstly, like I said, race itself is not, these are not distinct categories. So to assume that genetically groups of people are so distinct that that, that, that entire population could have a different average IQ is problematic in itself. Um, just because there is so much similarity. We are more homogeneous as a species than chimpanzees. We are one of the most homogeneous species on the planet. Um, so, you know, to, to assume that there are such profound genetic differences that people would think differently 
is itself a problem. Um, on the next level, when we're talking about IQ research, the data that gets shared about IQs in different countries um, is very problematic because IQ itself is a loaded test, a culturally loaded test. Um, you cannot compare the IQs of people living in different social and environmental circumstances because that's not a fair comparison. I mean, that's just basic science. You just cannot compare. That, that would be like saying you're comparing the IQ test results of children living in a deprived community in Glasgow and children at Eton. It's not fair. It's just, you, you know, you can't do it that way. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult on that level. The geneticists and the psychologists that I spoke to, even the ones on the very hereditarian end of the spectrum, so those who believe that IQ or intelligence is heavily inherited, even they said to me that it is not possible to do this research right now for the reasons that I just gave, because you cannot compare people in different cultural, social and environmental circumstances. Um, even if you were to, for example, do run an IQ test on everybody in India and everybody in the UK, it wouldn't tell you anything because a large proportion of the Indian population does not have, is not fully nourished, um, is illiterate, um, do not have the same standard of education. And all those things impact IQ. So how can you have a fair comparison there about nature? IQ is heavily impacted by the way you are raised and what you are fed and the culture that you belong to. Well, it makes you think that it seems a, a bit of a random thought, but it makes you think of the Jamie Oliver series where he went in and, and improved school dinners. And when they did, they found that school uh, kids um, could concentrate all of a sudden and they could sit down and they, they were no longer, some of them no longer had ADD. So, uh, you know, if you, if you think it's affecting the children, their diet is affecting the children that much. And th this is just changing their school dinners and what they're eating for lunch. Um, then what impact does it have to be raised in poverty or to be versus being raised uh, with a very healthy diet with, you know, a good range of foods? I mean, that alone will have an impact. Yeah, and of course it will. I mean, it makes perfect sense that it would. And this is why uh, other research has also shown that in most countries around the world, IQs have gone up over time. So over the course of the 20th century, IQs have gone up. That's not because we're any smarter. It's because... Because our environments and the and the world in which we live in that is designed to test us is improving. It's making us better at taking those tests in in every single possible way. And actually, IQ IQs have gone up fastest in developing countries because um, living standards have gone up fastest in those countries. Yeah, and I think that's very compelling because it, you know there's nothing that's happened within the genetics of 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 our country that will suddenly make us more intelligent. So it's it, it's clearly something environmental. I mean, not everyone agrees. There are people, I'm presumably, there are people who do say, for instance, there are, um, you can inherit to a certain extent. Um, are there not personality traits that we inherit from, from our parents? Um, not everything is environmental, is it? An IQ has certainly has some genetic element. Yes, it does. And, um, I, d I doubt there's any scientist or any mainstream scientist around today who would say that it is all environmental. There is a genetic component to our personality, to our intelligence, to our abilities, our capacities. We know that um, and we can see that. So I'm not discounting that. What scientists argue over and they're still arguing over is to what extent 
the environment and culture and nutrition matter and to what extent this is genetic. I would argue that this nature versus nurture, nurture question is the wrong way of framing it personally, because although we know that nature matters, it is also heavily impacted by nurture. There was some research that just came out recently looking at the brain development of Romanian orphans. So if you remember in the uh, 80s and 90s, there were these horrible images coming out um, of Eastern European children in orphanages who were completely neglected, treated so badly. And lots of studies have been done on their development ever since then as they have become adults. And what researchers have found is that their brains are different. Their brains have been impacted by that experience, you know, that they they suffer different rates of um, certain mental conditions that um, their brains look different, different sizes in different in different regions. And that goes to show that you cannot treat these nature versus nurture questions as two distinct things. Are we talking about nature when we're talking about someone's brain when they're an adult or are we talking about nurture? Well, if they've been neglected and their brain has changed as a result, that's both surely. So it just goes to show that our biology is directly impacted by the way that we live. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And from what you've seen, is there anything in, in – has science had any conclusion on what works to reduce racism? So in other words, because clearly, you know, shouting at people and pointing a finger and calling somebody a racist – probably doesn't isn't great at changing their mind so is there anything that we've discovered that does work somebody must have run some sort of trials on on reducing prejudice and so on there are there are psychologists who look at this issue in fact there was a lovely book that came out last year called biased by jennifer eberhardt who is um a psychologist at i think stanford university and um her work concentrates on so we know that there is um structural racism in American police forces. And she works with police officers to try and reduce their personal racism. And she's had positive results. The way she does it is fascinating. What she does is um, try and relate to that, uh, to the fact that we all have bias within us. So I think this is where we need to start is not by pointing the finger at other people, but really to introspect, to look inside ourselves and say, where does my bias come from? What prejudices do I have? What ideas do I have about the world and where did they come from and why do I have them? Many of us have ideas about race, racist ideas, even if we are black and brown or you know non-white because we live in societies that have fed us these ideas. Um, there are entire populations who have been subject to colonialism or slavery and that has an impact a cultural impact on how people think about themselves you know internalized racism so this bias doesn't just exist in some people and not others it exists in every single one of us and so what jennifer eberhardt does really beautifully is channel that is try and explain to people look where your biases are coming from i I understand because I can see that in myself as well and then try and find common ground and break things down that way. I don't think there's any one magic bullet for racism. These aren't this isn't about bombarding someone with the facts and then suddenly they're cured. It doesn't work that way. This is these are about deep-rooted beliefs that we have been raised with. These are about prejudices that are so ingrained in us that uh they feel like fact. And um, 
it's very difficult then to ease someone out of that. It takes not just education and reading and understanding and empathy, but also a great deal of introspection. Yeah. And I emailed a, a client who um, started a, a diversity training organization called Full Color um, as a result of taking one of my courses. And I, and I said to her at one point in the conversation, because I was asking for suggested things I could, I could talk to you about. And um, one of the things I asked, her, I said to her was, um, you know, it seems like the, the the country's less racist than it used to be. And she was very unconvinced by that. So now as a white person, I'm least qualified to take any judgment on that. But I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s and seeing much more overt racism. Can we track to see whether racism is reducing in certain countries? Do we know if it's reducing in Britain or how on earth you measure that? It's very tough because I think I agree with you. I grew up in London, southeast London, which was particularly racist. I grew up near the headquarters of the BNP. Um, so there were fascist marches through my town when I was a kid. Stephen Lawrence was killed near where I was li- where, where I lived. So there was a lot of overt racism when I was growing up, a lot of kind of racism on the street, if you like. Um, I see a bit less of that now, but that might be something to do with the fact that I moved to North London, (laughs) nice liberal, progressive North London, where people are a bit better. But but even when I go and visit my parents um, back in southeast London, it's different. I think things are better now than they used to be in terms of that everyday racism. But that isn't to say that racism has gone away. Um, and I don't think we should think of it in those terms. I don't think we can just rest on our laurels and say, well, things are better than they were in the 70s, so everything's good now. Um, there's always a process. And also, we're much more aware now of institutional racism, structural racism, you know, structural factors in institutions and politics and the media that uh, impact how people are understood and how they are treated. Um and we weren't aware of that in the 80s, certainly. In fact, it was really the Stephen Lawrence case that was the watershed there, because before that, people couldn't believe that the police were structurally racist or institutionally racist. The Stephen Lawrence case, very clearly, the reports that came out of that showed that there was institutional racism within the Metropolitan Police, and that was a watershed. I mean, that was huge. And now that we know that, you know, things have been done to try and combat that. So I think it's a long journey. And we always also have to be careful of the return of old ideas. There is a resurgence of the far right um, all over Europe, all over the world, I should say, the ethnic nationalism, religious nationalism all over the world. Um, and that concerns me. I see the kind of the sharp end of that myself as a journalist since my book came out, I've been heavily trolled online. People have, you know, on white supremacist and neo-Nazi websites, there's practically not a week that goes by that there isn't something written about me or my family. Um, so I think in these online spaces in particular, but also bleeding into the real world, as we saw in Charlottesville, Virginia, not so long ago, and in in certain political spaces as well, we can see these ideologies attempting to make a return, and we have to be on our guard about that. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask actually about what it's been like for you on this journey, and and I'm interested in in um, how people spread ideas, and particularly ideas that are well, any new idea is always going to have a pushback, but. But you're. But we know how explosive the topic of race is and, and gender difference, which your other book was about, um, uh, or about sexism, and 
um, Twitter is a is a pretty ugly place. I, I, I do you have you become impervious to the backlash you get? You're still on Twitter, are you? I am on Twitter. I did leave for a little while just because. Uh, there was a moment last summer where I couldn't block people fast enough. I was just getting so much racist abuse. In fact, there was an entire Twitter thread where people were trying to gauge my IQ by assessing my skin color. So they took photos of me from online and they thought if my skin color was darker, then my IQ must be lower. And that was a point at which I just thought I have to get off here for a while. It's just crazy. So I'm not impervious to it. It still affects me. There are sometimes some moments that I read things that I just think it completely breaks me, especially not so much for myself, but when people talk about, for instance, my family or about people I know, and and I'm not just talking about racism here. I have a very good disabled friend and I saw horrible comments made about him. And that really affected me because I just think these people are terrible. I mean, some of these people on Twitter, and I have to say most of them are anonymous. Some of them aren't, but they really are just the most despicable people you can imagine. And we allow it to happen. I mean, that's the thing that really floors me is that so many aspects of our life are regulated in terms of hate speech and what we can and can't do to other people in terms of expressing hatred and extremism towards them in politics, in the media, in the mainstream press. And yet online, it's a free-for-all. It's a, it's a wild west. Yeah. Yeah. I just had one tiny glimpse of that once when I replied to Scott Adams, who was defending Donald Trump and saying, I think he said it was not racist. And I said, well, you know, um, saying that Mexicans send their worst people, or I can't remember, or Mexicans, some Mexicans are rapists, and um, whatever the other thing was. Oh, and the and the the Muslim travel ban is surely that's a little bit racist. And he he went, he said, um, out of context, yes, in context, no, was his only answer. But then what happened was his his uh, you know alt right fans descended upon me. And for three days, I mean, I had a tiny taste of it. I mean, I'm white and I'm male and I get away fairly easily as a result. And I'd said something just, it was a reply to somebody else. And um, for two days, I couldn't look at Twitter because it was all the responses. There were people insulting me and then other people liking the response, but they'd insulted me. You know, really, it, it, so I, I can't even imagine what you put up with. And and so you still, you, 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 it doesn't stop you, fortunately. You still find that strength to carry on and 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 do your work well yeah i i mean it it does affect me still and there have been moments in the last year when my husband has said to me angela just give this up it's the problem is when you put out a book it has a long lifespan so there's not really much i can do about it now you know i can't roll back from that now and and, and i'm here and also i think if we do roll back those of us who are kind of pushing for progressive liberal values and also trying to present scientific facts, which so many of us are. It's not just me. There are so many scientists also fighting this same fight, prominent geneticists, prominent psychologists. If we give up, then in some ways they win. So I think we have to keep up the pressure. But I do think these kind of uh, social media debates and online debates that we're having, we can't have them forever. And at the way we're going, we're, we're going to be we're going to have to have them forever unless there is some fundamental change in the way these platforms work. Um, so I'm working at the moment to try and lobby the government to 
they're already the UK government are already planning to bring in social media regulation around disinformation and hate speech. I want them to include pseudoscience as part of that strategy. And I'm working with other scientists and scientific bodies to try and get them to include that, because this isn't just an issue of the far right or about degrading debate. I think debate has just been the level of debate has just sunk right into the mud. There is no reasonable debate to be had anymore on social media. But I do think that um, there is a deeper issue here, which is one, the threat to democracy, which we saw with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and the government has already recognised that. They're already doing some work around that. But also health. I mean, if you look at the extent of anti-vaccination sentiment online or climate anti-climate change sentiment on online um it's directly impact i mean this will kill people if not it has already killed people so we i think we just have to be we we have to do something about it and and now you know one of my big concerns is the anti-vaccine movement which you know as soon as you look into it even briefly it clearly has no basis whatsoever i mean anyone who can read a research paper or read a summary of research can find that out it's really simple and yet there is a huge number of people including some people who are friends of mine who have their doubts about vaccines that are completely unfounded and so that was one of my concerns is if you're saying that some of this science is racist and and and, and um uh and is driven you know well okay it's bad science but it's also driven by uh bad aims bad motives how do we know what science to pay attention to and what not pay attention to particularly is uh for those of us who are not scientifically trained i mean i have some basis from studying a bit of physics but for most of the population haven't studied science don't know how to read a research paper um, and don't really know what it all means. So how do we make sure we don't throw the baby out of the bathwater and say, well, it's just down to your opinion after all? I mean, this is the difficulty. The problem with scientific information and fact-checking scientific information is that it's always um, there's always a degree of uncertainty in everything, and especially in medical research. Um, there's always that kind of tiny sliver that maybe it could be wrong. And this is how science works, actually. I think I think sometimes the public imagine that every time a scientific paper comes out, that's a new unvarnished truth. It it's not exactly the way science works is a process of making mistakes, sometimes getting it right, uh, correction. And continuing that way until you get closer and closer to rely to a reliable consensus on what the science is. Now, on climate change, I would say we have we have a very reliable consensus now on vaccination, on the efficacy of vaccination. We have not just a reliable consensus, but we also have um, a long body of uh, experimental and clinical research that's been done on the efficacy of vaccines that shows that they overwhelmingly have a positive uh, impact on populations rather than a negative one. So it's difficult because you can't take any one paper's word for it, I should I should say. We have to read critically whenever we read. And if you're a lay person, it can be really difficult because how critical are you supposed to be? How are you supposed to assess the veracity of what you're reading? It, be, it can be very tough. Um, and I wouldn't say, you know, blindly put your trust in the faith of scientists because scientists do get things wrong. And a lot of my work is about how scientists get things wrong. But I think we can still trust the method. For me, science is still the best way 
the best means we have of understanding the world and our, ourselves and the universe. And even though mistakes are made, I think in the long run, as long as we have um, people doing this in good faith, doing research in good faith and trying to be accurate and trying to account for their biases, then then we move forward with what we know. But it is tough out there. We live in an age of mistrust. I do think um, that isn't entirely unfounded. I mean, there are I mean, there are news stories that come out sometimes that I think must be conspiracy theories and they're not. So can I really blame people for believing in other conspiracy theories? For example, that the world is flat. You know, there are very educated people out there who believe the earth is flat. And however crazy that might sound to me, they have got there through some process of, you know, rationalizing it to themselves, picking out certain bits of evidence. And um, that is quite scientific in a way. (laughs) That, That is skepticism. That is kind of questioning the world around you, which is a good thing to do. The problem is that the internet in some ways, and also kind of, I mean, these problems predate the internet. There have always been conspiracy theorists out there. There have always been issues around um, people not believing scientists or trusting authority. Um, But the internet in particular, I think, allows people to find each other when they believe in these theories and to disappear down rabbit holes um, of misinformation. And um, that's the problem that we're facing. It's it's not a simple one. It's not a mat- matter of just education or ignorance. No, no, that's right. I mean, I thought having access to all the world's information instantaneously would make us smarter, but it seems to have made some people dumber. So uh, in summary, but okay, well, it's just been fascinating. And um, uh, it's quite a hopeful message, I think, that you have overall. So you, you sound like you still have optimism left, which is very encouraging. I too, because I have faith in human nature. I travel a lot. I speak at a lot of universities. And most of the people, I would say the vast majority of people that I meet are working to make the world a better place. They're well-intentioned, they're hopeful, they're optimistic, and they really want the world to be better. And if you have all those people working towards that, whatever negative and dangerous forces there are in the world, I think just can't possibly win. We have to show love to each other. I think that's what it really comes down to. We have to have empathy and we have to be forgiving and we have to show love. Wonderful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, thank you, Angela. That's been absolutely fascinating. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast.